0: Matthew 26, beginning in verse 31. And the heading there is Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you i never will truly i tell you jesus answered this very night before the rooster crows you will disown me 3 times but peter declared even if i have to die with you i will never disown you and all the other disciples said the same then jesus went to his his disciples to he went with his disciples to a place called gethsemane and he said to them sit here while i go over there Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Come, Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call upon my Father and at once He will send at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? In, In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then the disciples deserted him and fled. I know that uh, last week we talked
1: about the the, kind of the tag phrase, what is truth? And that is the lesson that Eric taught with you guys last week. This week we're going to be uh, studying and looking at the Garden of Gethsemane, and I don't know if you guys maybe recognize some of this. Uh, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But I will tell you, in my grandmother's house, I remember. Y'all, y'all know how it is, like when you're growing up in your granny's house and you see stuff, and you're like, it has this nostalgia on it. You guys know what I'm talking about, like you remember it. This next picture that we're going to put up, she had a picture like this of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and and. It was old and faded, you know, like, you know, pictures do, they're not the highest quality and kind of they go away sometimes, but this is the picture Christ in Gethsemane, which was painted by someone named Heinrich Hoffman, probably a German painter around 1886, but you've probably seen prints of this similar picture Uh, and it is so interesting because there's Jesus um, with the long flowing locks and his hair shining you know because he's in a you know shampoo commercial right i mean you just wonder uh, you know they were trying to d- d- just describe the deity of Jesus but in some ways i want to be very clear he didn't have a a shining halo going on he didn't have this serene look on his face the bible tells us in the passage that eric just read he said my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death in other words i'm on the verge of a breakdown So he doesn't have this serene picture like we like to paint him. This is probably the most difficult day that Jesus has ever faced in his entire human life. And so as he is there, he's in a stressful and incredibly difficult situation. Jesus has both the blessing and the curse of knowing what is just around the corner. Have you guys ever thought about that? Think about that for just a quick second. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I really wish I knew what was coming, <laughs> and then later you go, thank God I didn't know that was just around the corner, because the truth is is sometimes that is a great way to lose all element of joy. Whatever good is happening now if it's going to be tainted later, we tend to move to the things that are tainted so quickly. Jesus knows what's coming and it is a blessing and it is a curse. And in the midst of this time he goes to a garden that's very familiar to him and to his disciples. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, let's just talk about this real quickly. Gethsemane is a real place. This is a picture of the actual Garden of Gethsemane, and you can even see that there's some new construction back there. That is the, uh, the new uh, church and that kind of thing that is built there, but some of those trees are literally 1,000 years old. Now, that's not how old it was when it was back in Jesus' day, but that's an olive tree. Now, that's pretty cool looking to me. I think it's pretty neat. And, and it just reminds you that all of these things that happened happened to real people in a real place. And this is the actual Garden of Gethsemane, but this is a kind of a forgotten gem somewhat. If you look at the passages of scripture that describe Jesus' life and especially at the end of his life we're talking about the king claiming his crown. At the very end of his life Jesus does all of these things that fulfill the scriptures and eventually lays down his life on the cross and it begins here in the garden of Gethsemane with an arrest that is on its way. Jesus knows it but he is in that type of place right there and he says a couple of things that you probably even heard. One is he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. You've heard that before. It is also where Jesus utters the words, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You've heard these kind of said before and shared before they're they're kind of proverbs in many ways but these are happening as Jesus's life is being threatened and as it comes to an end and here's the first something to learn I usually only have one of these I have two of these this week because there's just so much going on and I ain't gonna lie I probably could have preached two pass- two uh, lessons on this passage of scripture I want you to know I'm not doing that I'm not even trying to fit it all in in the first okay so you could breathe a little easier but I will tell you this is is so rich, like there's just so much here, and it is a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. Here's the first something to learn. The Garden of Gethsemane is located on the side of the Mount of Olives. I just told you that picture you just saw a moment ago, you saw that there was an olive tree there. Uh, The Garden of Gethsemane was located on the side of the Mount of Olives. You've heard of that in Jesus's narrative. In it, olives were pressed for their oil. It is famously the place where Christ is pressed beyond any other time of his life as he stares down the cross that he must face. And so in many ways, this place where the press of olives is going on is the place where Jesus is pressed and he feels constrained to do what God has called him to do. And yet there is a part of him that wants to flee If you were listening closely to what Eric read just a few moments ago, you hear there's a lot of anguish going on. As a matter of fact, Jesus asks the same question of God three separate times. He prays and he says, Lord, if it's possible, if this cup could pass for me. Now, real quickly, in the Bible, and especially in the prophetic uh, word, the, the idea of a cup is where God's wrath is contained. And he's saying, if it's possible for me to avoid drinking this cup of God's wrath, then that's what I desire. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thy will be done. And he prays that prayer, hoping for the support of his friends. He turns around and looks, and Peter, James, and John are here. They're the inner circle of the disciples. They're the the three closest ones to him. But then the rest of the 12 minus Judas are over there. And so there's basically the the group of disciples that have followed him all of his life, minus Judas, these three who he would call his closest confidants and his best friends, those people that are there to be a support for him, he's asked them, please pray with me. My soul is at a point of being overwhelmed and I need you to be a strength for me, an anchor for me, a support for me. He gets through praying that prayer that I mentioned about the cup of God's wrath. He can turn and see the three here sleeping and the other eight over there sleeping as well. Now, before we get too hard on them, if you've ever tried to do an all-night prayer meeting, it ain't easy. It ain't easy, especially as you start hitting those midnight hours and you start closing your eyes. And the minute you close your eyes, you know, you're ready to fall out, right? Well, these men are not fully aware of what's going on the way Jesus is. He's told them, but they don't hear it in the same way that he is delivering it. And there is so much pressure that Christ is facing. As a matter of fact, the pressure is this. It's first of all physical. He's going to he's be facing among the worst tortures of any that you and I have ever seen. He's going to have his hands Nailed through, probably around his wrist, because in the old days, the wrist and the hand were one. They would call that a hand. But he is going to have nails put through his wrists, nailing him down to a cross, through the tops of his feet, and then he is going to suffocate in his own inability to push himself up off of his feet. So he can gasp for another breath. All of his weight is crushing down on his chest. And he has been beaten to within an inch of his life anyway. And so he is about to face this. It is absolutely humiliating, horrible torture. They tell us that back in those times that most people who were crucified on a cross were crucified there. And they were stripped naked. As people walk by, they would literally see them without any clothing on whatsoever. They were naked bodies in front of people. So their most humiliating thing is happening at the very end of their life. And they can barely even push up on their legs just to catch a breath. It is no doubt a physical thing that Jesus is facing. Absolutely a physical thing. But this is where Jesus has even more than we can even grasp or understand. He's about to be abandoned or betrayed by his very best friends at his time of greatest need. If you listen to what Eric read just a moment ago, you heard him say, and then all of his disciples fled. And this is just after all of his disciples said, well, even if all, you know, even if old James and Bartholomew, they might reject you, but Lord, I will never leave you. I'll never betray you. That's never going to happen with me because, you know, we're tight like that, right? And then Jesus knows, even as they're saying the words, they're minutes and moments away from leaving him when he needs them the absolute most their best friends at his greatest time of need they're abandoning him and peter even will go to the place where he betrays him and says i don't even know the man's name what are you talking about and then we cannot miss this the the thing that jesus is pressured by so much is that there is the concept of the spiritual side That, that spiritual side is the guilt and the sin that is put upon him and all of the sins of the world are placed on his shoulders so that he might be the sacrifice that god requires for sin to be forgiven and don't miss this you guys know this is true now i can't really see it on a physical body but sometimes you can when we carry guilt for our actions, when we know we've done wrong, when we know we've sinned or hurt somebody in a deep and profound way, it feels like we've got a weight on our shoulders. I don't even have to tell you guys that. Y'all know, you've been there, you're weighed down by guilt. And even those who don't necessarily accept that there is such a thing of sin, you know, in the modern world, no, nah, there's no sin, whatever you do is just fine. The truth of the matter is, is that we know, even our hearts tell us, that there is something that weighs us down when we know we have sinned and done wrong. And if you can imagine having the weight of the world on your shoulders, literally having the weight of the world on your shoulders as Jesus did, he was carrying the weight of the entire sin and guilt sacrifice for all of the world. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews, not just for all that had been, not all that just were, but all that would be, Jesus is carrying a weight that is absolutely crushing him spiritually and relationally. He's also cut off from the God who he has been one with in every single way ever since eternity passed. It's an amazing thing that Jesus is dealing with in that moment. So real quickly, this is something to learn, this second one. It's very important, and I'm going to get a little deep, but I think it's really important for you and I to grasp some things. In this particular one, the incarnation of Christ, Christ was not Half human and half divine. Jesus instead is basically the only 200% individual in all of human history. He's both fully human and fully divine all at the same time. It is impossible for us to grasp the concept of the Trinity. It is also impossible for us to grasp the idea of the Incarnation. Now, how many of you guys in here like Mexican food? Can I see your hands? I know I'm feeling like you're going in a different direction. Swerve with me here real, real quick. The word carne asada mean anything to any of you? Can I get an amen about carne asada? Don't, don't leave. You've been seen. The minute I mentioned carne asada, some of you are all like, man, I'm going to go get me some. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Carne, the word is meat or flesh. The idea of the incarnation means that God put His Spirit and His personality and His goodness and His deity in meat or flesh. He put Jesus in flesh and then gave Him to the world. And it is hard for us to grasp this, but everything that is true of God was true of Jesus, and yet at the same time, he was fully human and fully divine. Here's what that looks like. Let's go to this next slide very, very quickly. This is something that's called the Chalcedonian Creed. It was met and discussed for weeks in the area of 450 BC or 450 AD, excuse me. And as they talk through it, this is what they came up with. Jesus has two natures. He is God and he is man. Each nature is full and complete. He is fully God and fully man. And each nature remains distinct, but Christ is only one person. And things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. Now, here's what that means. For some of you, it's like, ooh, we got real deep real fast. Hang with me. Here's what it means. Let's go to this next slide. If you look at this, it says that gazing into the cup of God's wrath, Jesus saw hell open. And for him, it was for him that it was open, and he staggered. He was shocked at the weight that his human self was going to have to bear up under. You guys with me? Y'all understand? So let's talk about this even a little further. Can we go to this next slide? As both human and divine, Jesus thirsts while he's on the cross. That's a human side of him. God doesn't need water. He doesn't need anything to drink, but the human Christ did. He is tempted to avoid the suffering of this cross. That's, that's the human side of him. He is fully human and fully divine. He doesn't have to apologize for that, but he knows that there's something coming that he doesn't want to go through. That's the human side. But Jesus also, if you remember back in the stories of the the Gospels, he knew people. He would meet people, like the woman at the well, and he'd say, why don't you go call your husband? And she'd say, ah, I don't really have a husband. And Jesus would say, it's true that you don't have a husband. You've had four husbands, and as a matter of fact, the guy that you're with right now is not, even your husband. And so what you've said is very true. And then she looks at him and she's like, I perceive that you are a prophet. In other words, Jesus knew people before he knew people. That's the divine part of him. He works miracles all throughout his ministry, including and even up to the point of raising the dead. This is Jesus's divine nature. But Jesus alone as both fully God and fully man, Just him alone, no one else could do this. He alone is able to die for the sins of all mankind. And you can see that in First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, 47, 49. And here's what it looks like all pushed together. So it is written: the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is from heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, just like we look like Adam, so we as Christians will eventually bear the image of Christ as forgiven people who have been accepting of his gift. It's so incredible. All right, so this is what's going on and this is what is happening. But now that we've kind of gone through some of the theology and some of the narrative, I wanna remind you of something. Here's why Jesus came in the first place. Here's why he's staring down the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wants to see people reconciled to God. And as he does, this is what it looks like from the vision or the view of one man, that man that was mentioned as the servant who had his ear cut off with a sword by Peter. Let's take a look at this kind of dramatic representation of the story of Malchus. Let's check it out.
2: I served an unapproachable God. While I, I served the high priest that served an unapproachable God. But everything changed in that one night. Everything changed in one night. I was drugged to the garden and then my ear... getting ahead of myself. Let me back up. I was there in the garden with Judas. Judas knew exactly where Jesus was going to be, and we were all there waiting for him. It was crazy that night. His disciples were with him, but I saw Jesus. I I was very close to Jesus, and you could tell he was visibly upset. And uh, Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek, and I was standing so close that I heard Jesus call Judas' friend, and that's the last thing I heard, because in a moments later I heard nothing. I I saw the flash of a blade come toward my face, and, and I felt blood streaming down, and then it got quiet, and then I got dizzy. And then Jesus, he, he touched me. Like I said, I heard all the stories about Jesus, and I've heard all the stories about how Jesus healed people with his hands. There was this one time he, he healed a person with, with dirt and spit, and so many people, he just healed them with his hands, but it wasn't his hands for me. It was the way he looked at me. It was his eyes. That's what broke me. His eyes were filled with compassion and grief and joy. And, and, when, he, and when he pulled his hand away, my ear, I mean. That night, everything I heard about that man had changed forever. They had a mock trial for him. Um, the whole night was just set up to con- condemn him. And he didn't say a word. He, he just felt sorry for us. There was the sentencing. There was, there was Pilate. Uh, the crucifixion. And then there was an earthquake. And then the veil. I was in the temple. I was in the temple when the veil was was ripped in half. Do you know what that means? I mean, even, even I knew what that meant. God had invited us all in. The unapproachable God was now approachable. God was on the move.
1: And so you see, just from this dramatic reenactment, that God really is doing all that he can to separate whatever obstacles might be in the way of human beings being reconciled to God. Let's go back and look at Matthew chapter 26. And this is at the very beginning, as Jesus is kind of making a prediction for all he says to them, "This very night, you all will fall away on account of me." You've heard a lot about Peter being the one who denied him. The truth of the matter is is that all 11, besides for Judas, left him as well. And clearly, Judas wasn't exactly the guy that you'd want to be, right? Uh, and so Jesus says, "All of you are going to fall away. for it's written, "I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered." But then isn't this beautiful? Isn't this awesome? He says, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. In other words, when we, you know, when I have risen, I'm going to be with you even wherever you go. And then Peter replies, but even if all fall away on account of you, Lord, I never will. We're tight. Lord, we're really tight. I'm not going to do that to you. But then Jesus says to him, and we kind of condensed it down. Jesus says, oh yeah? As a matter of fact, Peter, the truth of the matter is is that you're actually going to deny me three times before the rooster even crows. And before the sun is up, you're going to have denied me three times that you even know me. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, Lord, I'm never going to disown you. And then all of the other disciples said the same thing. It's an interesting thing to kind of look at the will that is going on here in this passage of scripture, here in the garden of Gethsemane. I want to start off by looking at Peter's will. Peter's will, he says, I'm going to be with you no matter what, even if everyone else deserts you, Lord, I'm never going to turn my back on you. It'll never happen. That's what Peter says he will do. But then let's think about the the will of the twelve. And by the way, this does not include Judas anymore. It includes the eleven that are there left, but they've always been called the twelve. They continue to be called the twelve. And eventually Judas' place will be taken by another. But here we see this will of the twelve. The will of the twelve, Jesus says to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he is absolutely right and nothing's changed in our modern world. The flesh is still incredibly weak. But then we see the will of the king, the will of Jesus that reigns supreme. The will of Christ says to God the Father, not my will, but your will be done. And I wrote there on that slide, and then and there the king claims his crown. I made that graphic that you see there, not that I took the picture or staged the thing. I I, I made the graphic with the king claims his crown and the Eagle Heights logo in the corner and all that stuff. I made this because we are reminded that the king who you can name over all earthly kings did not have a crown of gold but chose a crown of thorns and suffering and servanthood not to be served, I mean, not to be served, but to serve others. When Jesus claims the crown, he's not claiming deity and importance and, and you serve me because I'm worthy of that, even though he is. What he's doing instead is he's saying, I am your king and the last thing in the world that I want is anyone who is a part of my kingdom to be separated. And so I'll do everything that is possible every single thing that God requires, everything that I would not want to do, I am willing to do because we have to be together. This is the will of the king. Not my will, but thine be done. That's the will of the king. The will that says, I will lay down what I want, And I will do what you ask for. I will do what you demand. I will obey you. This is the will of the king submitted willingly to God. Now, this is why it is so important. And this is the big idea that I want you to take away. Every step forward in your life begins with a surrender of your will. I'm going to say it again, and then I'm going to ask you guys to say it out loud with me. Every step forward in your life begins with a surrender of your will. Would you guys say it with me? Every step forward in your life begins with a surrender of your will. You know this. I don't know if you've thought about it. I don't know if you've really put it in these terms But the truth of the matter is, is that everything that you do that puts you in a different position begins with the decision of your will. And you will come and go if your will is weak. You will come and go and be there and then not be there and sometimes do and sometimes not and be faithful and then unfaithful and all of these things back and forth. But when the time comes and you finally say, I'm done playing games, the will has been crucified, and now I will do what I know God wants me to do. This is where Jesus is upset. He has asked three times for his disciples to watch and pray with him. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Can you not watch and pray with me even just for an hour? Arise and let's go. Here comes my betrayer. And he gets up from that third prayer. And I believe this is where the crucifixion really takes place. If you will allow me, I said this in Facebook, I said this in uh, the, the email. This to me is everything. To me, to me, this is where the crucifixion takes place, not on the cross. That's like it's already done and written. This is just the follow through. This is just the, the reverb from what the decision, where it got actually made. When Jesus steps up and says, rise, here comes my betrayer. I believe he has already made up his mind that he is not going to do anything else than give himself willingly on the cross. This is the crucifixion, and it begins with the will of Christ submitted to the will of God. Now, here's where I wanna make it really, really practical. Actually, let's go, I'll I'll, I'll close the loop theologically, and then I'll make it real practical. Let's go to this next slide. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. He drew it, he struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. That's in the movie that you just saw. Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think that I can call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions? And legion makes up about four to 6,000 per legion. He's basically telling the 12, I don't need the 12 disciples to fight for me. If I really wanted to fight, I'd have 12 legions at my disposal like that. That means literally, I'm not good with math, okay, but let me see. I think it's about 72,000 angels that are at Christ's disposal if he just asks and they're there, but he chooses not to ask. And he says, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say everything's got to happen in this way? You guys with me? Y'all with me? Jesus is doing it right down the line and he has crucified the will. Now the crucifixion of the body is about to take place. Now, here's where it gets really, really practical for all of us. Let's go to this next slide. This is the inner circle. This is the inner circle of Jesus' group. He took Peter, James, and John. Those are the two sons of Zebedee. And you would think to yourself... Well, you know, if I just knew more of God, if I just knew more of God, then I could be that person of faith that I ought to be. If I had just seen a little more of God working in my life, then I would be that person of faith and I would stand up in those defining moments and I, and I wouldn't lose sight and I wouldn't lose heart and I wouldn't lose faith and I would keep going and I would crucify my will and I would always be obedient to God. I know y'all haven't said that, but I'm asking for a friend, right? Okay, here's the truth of the matter. Here is the truth. These three that were there sleeping instead of weeping alongside of Christ, these three had just maybe weeks or at most months before seen the divinity of God shine through the humanity. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. The Bible tells us that those three and Jesus were there and they were on this mountain, and his divinity starts to shine through. Jesus is showing them who he really, truly is, the extent of his power. And then you see Moses and Elijah come and visit with him, and they are they're freaking out. They are freaking out. Peter doesn't even know what to say, but that don't stop him. <laughs> Peter knows how to say the words, even when the brain ain't engaged, all right? I don't know if any of y'all can identify Peter, I'm right there with you, brother. Say say it when it doesn't need to be said. Peter's like, "Uh, Lord, this this is great. This is awesome. Uh, Maybe we should just put up three shelters. Uh, Maybe one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This is fantastic. And God the Father says, no, 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 no. You only need one thing. And you're looking right at him in the center. Hear my son and my son alone. That's enough. They've literally seen the glory of God Shining through a human body. He's illuminating himself. Probably similar to that very first picture that you saw. But weeks later, they're the the same three guys that can't stay awake in the middle of the night and be with Jesus while he's got his final moments of freedom. You guys understand what I'm saying? So here's what I'm saying to us. We had best believe when Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, we had best believe he's telling us, telling us a huge truth. We have best believe that he is not wrong. He is telling us an incredible truth. Now, let me just say this. This is your takeaway that you can take. This isn't all that we're going to talk about, but you can take this. Your flesh does not always feel weak. Sometimes, hey, I can conquer the world. But there is a part of you, you know, that sometimes a certain temptation hits you just right. If you do not believe and act as if the flesh is always weak, as Jesus said, you will fall in these defining moments. You just will. Give no place for the flesh is what Paul says in his writings to those who are in the early church. Let me explain it to you this way. Let me explain it to you this way. And I want to get real meddlesome right now. Real meddlesome. Some of you are going to think, I'm after you. I'm not after you. I'm after us. And I'm here to tell you that I had to make some things very clear and very clear to those who would keep me accountable, including my wife. I can hand my wife my phone. And by the way, I only have one. That's important. (laughs) I only have one phone. I can hand my wife my phone, and she doesn't have to say, Now, what's your code? I only have one email address that all of my stuff gets forwarded to, and she always can look. She always can look. She's got the freedom to ask me anytime, Randy, what have you been watching when we're not together and when we're not around? Why is this mattering? Because here's the deal. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I'm here to tell you I stand before you as a man who knows that the flesh is weak. And so what I have had to do to get any kind of victory is I have had to make myself accountable to friends, to my wife, and to other people to hold me between the guardrails so that I don't get my life off track in a place that ruins me or ruins all that God is trying to do in my life. Now, I will tell you that there is an easier way to live but I haven't found a way to crucify my will except for this way. I have to make a decision when I'm feeling strong knowing that the time will eventually come where my flesh will become weak and if I haven't set safety nets, if I haven't set guardrails in place, then guess who's not going to hold it onto the roads? This guy. You know why? Because I have seen it far too often in my handful of decades that I have lived. I'll let you figure out how many a handful is. In the handful of decades that I've been living with this person, I'm here to tell you the spirit is always wanting to do what is right, but the flesh, most of the time, is stronger than I expect. This is not just a guy thing. This is a woman thing. For some of you, you have temptations to do certain things, have certain attitudes to be involved in certain people's lives that you don't need to be involved in. Like I could go on and on and on. I told you I was about to get meddlesome up in here. This is true for all of us. For most of us, we think, well, I'm going to be strong. And then we're shocked when we fall. Jesus said, the spirit is willing. Can y'all finish it with me so I can keep moving? But the flesh is weak. You had best treat it as that truth has not changed. Because I promise you, it has not. <laughs> now, I feel bad for the guys. I don't know. I'm just going to admit this to you real quick. The will is hard to crucify. And it is easier to do something you know, that makes the will feel better. But not accomplish what it should. In other words, you can look at this. Give me just a second. Let's go back one slide. It's hard. If you're a night watchman like this person here, this soldier that is depicted, I'm going to tell you something. You know what you don't need to do? You don't need to find a comfortable spot to sit if you're a night watchman. Can I get an amen? I mean, because I'm that guy that falls asleep in less than 30 seconds. Y'all think I'm joking, but I ain't joking. I'm telling you, I hit the pillow. I close my eyes. Shelly, give me an amen. I'm out within 30 seconds. So if I'm doing night watchman duty, if my head goes down, y'all come get me now because I'm not going to be fulfilling my duties. You know why? The spirit is willing. I want to do what's right, but guess what's weak? The flesh. The flesh. And so if you are a person who hasn't figured out some of your pitfalls and your problems, you better start paying attention to where your feet go when you're feeling weak. Because usually you start gravitating towards that stuff that makes you feel better and feel whole, that dulls the pain and takes some of that away from you. But the truth of the matter is, is that some of that stuff is just holding on to chains for yourself. You had best make the decision, if I'm going to be doing something, and I'm going to be in a place where the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, I'm not going to sit down. I'm not going to put my head down. I'm not going to close my eyes. I'm going to be walking around. This is when the disciples need to be praying, oh Lord, (laughs) you know, doing that walking and praying thing, not laying down and praying thing, because that just doesn't work. Why am I saying all this? Because for most of us, it's so important that we grasp and understand that the victory that Christ wants us to have begins with the submission of the will. But it's not just making a choice and making a decision in a moment of strength. It's putting enough things in place to keep you from falling into the traps that are always there when you're feeling strong because you know that eventually you won't be feeling as strong as you want to be. And that's when things can get seriously problematic. All right. Well... Here's what I want to say. I'm about to get super theological with you with slide number 25 here. Well, let's let's begin. Let's begin with why the will won't die. Let's begin with that one because I think good intentions are good enough. That's why my will won't die. Because my will won't die because I found something or someone to blame rather than do the hard work of changing myself. Why my will won't die? Because I want to feel like I'm in control. That makes me feel better. So that's part of why my will won't die. Or here's why my will won't die. Because my own plans are easier than God's plans. Right? I mean, these are at least four reasons. But now I'm going to get super theological with you. For all of us, we're going to feel two different ways. And it's caught in this beautiful, incredible thing. I want a hot body, but I also want tacos. Right? I mean, this is the best picture ever made if y'all are not familiar with Nacho Libre, you know. That's it, right? Isn't it? Like, I want this, but I also want that. Like, that is what I really want to see me be, but then there's tacos, (laughs) right? And you go a little deeper and you go a little further and just think about this next one right here. It's all fun and games till your jeans don't fit. Can I get an amen? It's all fun and games till you can't fit into your jeans no more. And then suddenly it's a thousand dollar investment just because you wouldn't stop eating tacos. All right. Now, by the way, just an FYI, eventually we're going to come back together. And you might think of these passages and these great things that I'm sharing with you, this incredible Knowledge that I'm dropping on you about wanting tacos and stuff, but here's the truth. This is so true. Sunday carbs don't count. When we get back together and eventually have potlucks, Sunday carbs don't count. Those are gifts from the Lord. Amen. So there you go. All right. I always tell you guys when we're together, no such thing as calories. That's like going to be in heaven. All right. So here's the truth. You want one thing, you want another, and which one wins is so important because the truth is, and I didn't write it down on a slide. But you remember, you sow an act, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a, 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 I think, a mentality. You sow a mentality, you reap a legacy. You know, it goes on and on and on. And you find yourself making all these small compromises. And Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, this is the crucifixion of my will, not my will, but thine be done. All right, very quickly. Here's something really important, and I'm coming very close to the end. We are reconciled to God. This is the good news for you and for me. We are reconciled to God from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He begins and says, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has come, or the old has passed and the new has come. And then he goes on and he says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. And Man, can I get an amen that isn't it good to know that you are not judged by your worst moment? Can I get an amen on that, man? I am glad and grateful that God doesn't see and say, Randy, do you remember that one time where you were looking around going, I can't believe I'm in this situation. I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I just said that, all of you will fall away. Not me, not me, not me. Me neither, Lord. And then everyone fled. We can identify. God, thank you that you don't judge us by our worst moment. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is Paul's way of saying when he hung him on the cross He took everything that you needed to give up, everything I needed to give up, and everything that all of humanity needed to give up to be forgiven in God's sight. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So here's what we have to do we have to pray, Lord, kill my will. May my will die so that I might become the person and the individual you want me to be. Lord, kill my will. That tells me that I know better than you, so that you might shine forth in my life, so that our family might be what it is supposed to be, so that our relationships might be what they are supposed to be, so that some of the sin that I've never gotten rid of in my life can be left here, and I can say, Crucify that stuff, Lord, I wanna leave it behind, and I'm committing to leave it all behind at the foot of the cross. Like, let it die. Just let it die. This is how you kill your will. I just want to talk about it real quickly. Here's how you begin to kill your will. These things that we talked about just a moment ago. If you're a person who says I, good intentions are enough, I'm going to tell you that you will stand before the Lord and give an account for your life. That's what the Bible clearly says. And so you have to face the Lord who gave you the life that he gave you, gave you the opportunities that he gave you, and you have to tell him why you chose to accept much, much less than he had enabled you to do. Or if you're the person who found somebody to blame, I'm here to tell you something. Can I just tell you something? The blame game is awesome to make you feel like it's not your fault. But here in about three or four or five or six or seven years, you're going to look around and go, why is my life still crap? (laughs) That's the spiritual word, y'all. Hang with me, all right? Mom, if you're watching, I'm sorry. I know you didn't want me to say crap behind the pulpit, right? Here's the deal. Why is your life still crap? Here's why. Here's why. Your life is still crap because you found somebody to blame and they took all the blame in your mind, but you never made a change. Because it's easier to blame than it is to change. I talked about that two weeks ago. And you look around and go, my life still is bad in the midst of all this blame. I thought it was their fault. Well, it's still your life. If you haven't grasped that it's your life that has to change, you probably won't crucify your will. Just take it as a guy who has lost months of his life, not surrendering his will surrender your will or otherwise you're in the same place with the same questions and the same problems or you want to say but I feel like I'm in control hey congratulations have you met 2020 the year 2020 if you thought you were in control if you didn't get the memo from 2020 <laughs> we've got 2021 to remind you i'm telling you the truth of the matter is is that if we thought we were in control 2020 showed us We ain't got no control over anything. Everything we thought we knew, we didn't. Everything we thought we could rely on, we couldn't, except for God and God alone. Have you met 2020? It reminds you that your will doesn't really matter. It's God's will that prevails. And then finally, help you kill your will, help me kill my will. See, my tiny little plans that involve mainly just me and involve other people doing things to please me versus God's grand master plan that is an absolute masterpiece with every bit of tapestry woven together, intricate and incredibly beautiful. Or you can keep your own little tiny thing that you got going. Because the truth of the matter is, is that had Jesus, I don't want to go too far down this road, Jesus was able to walk away from the cross. He chose the cross. Had he left, he would just be one other individual that did not fulfill the will of God. Jesus took his last last breath and said, It is finished, paid in full. Everything that God asked me to do, I have done, finished. (laughs) Most of us can't say that an hour into getting out of bed. Jesus lived the perfect life, fully submitted to God. It is incredible. His will fully submitted to God. Very quickly, I wanna ask a couple of questions and then I'm gonna close. Here it is, real quickly. Here's the big question. What area of your life is your will still unsubmitted? And what area of your life does your flesh still have a foothold? This is important for you and I to talk about. It's not easy, but it is important It is not easy to say, this is it, and this is my problem, and this is how it's got to change. But I'm here to tell you, if you find these things and begin to take action and crucify that will, there is hope for you. It is so important and so necessary if we're going to move forward. Here's how you apply. you got to make a conscious decision or decisions to take action to kill the will. Put guardrails and put accountability in place. It is absolutely vital. Now, here's what I want to share with you as I close. I'm going to show this picture. Man, they just don't make hats like that anymore. Can I get an amen, right? Shelly, do you want one of those? I'll get you one of those if you want one. I think I'd have to go to a museum, right? This woman's name is Ella uh, Ella Wheeler-Cox. Now, the oaky almost came out at me. Her name is Ella Wheeler-Cox. No, Ella Wheeler-Cox. And she wrote a poem in 1917 called Gethsemane. And she had great insight into it. She had great insight into the fact that the Garden of Gethsemane is what shifts things for us, changes things for us. It is where we have to come face to face with the want of self versus the want and the will of God. Will we crucify our will to His? Here is... A section of the poem and it says down shadowy lanes across strange streams bridged over by our broken dreams behind the misty cap of years close to the great salt fountain of tears the garden lies and strive as you may you cannot miss it on your way all paths that have been or paths that shall be paths somewhere through Gethsemane all those who journey soon or late must pass within that garden's gate they must kneel alone in darkness there and battle with some fierce despair God pity those who cannot say not mine but thine but those who only pray let this cup pass and they cannot see the purpose in Gethsemane Gethsemane, Gethsemane. God, help us through Gethsemane. As I read this, I'm reminded of these truths. The truth is, is that you will go through problems. You will go through trials. You will have a moment where you're at a crossroads and you can crucify your will or you can have it your way. The example of Christ is to say, not mine but thine be done and then get up and say not enough I gotta pray it again not mine but thine be done and then get up and go still not there Like I gotta go back and pray it one more time not mine but thy will be done and then to rise up and say you know what I'm ready for the cross, whatever it costs, I'm ready for this cross. I come back to the big idea and I remind myself every time I've ever done anything that is of worth or value, anytime I've claimed higher ground, anytime I've leveled up in any area of my life, it began with a decision that could not be shaken. For many of us, we get very comfortable. And until we are pressed, and in a hard and difficult situation, we think, well, it's fine, it's good enough. As Christ was pressed, he said, you know what? I die to self so that the will of God might be shown in my life. For many of us, it is time for us to stop playing games in all kinds of areas of our life, whether that be relationally, financially, spiritually, absolutely spiritually, and on and on I could go, physically, whatever. I'm just saying it begins with the crucifixion of the will. For some, it might be that you've never asked Jesus into your heart and you've never come to him and said, you know what? Man, I've lived my life my way, but it's enough. (laughs) I realize that's a, a treadmill of despair and frustration getting me nowhere fast. I need to make my life the one that brings glory and honor to you. Please cleanse me, forgive me of the sins, and make me your child. If you've never done that, today is your day. But for many of you who have done that, for some of you, you're hearing not my voice, but you're hearing the voice of God and you're hearing clearly that the will that you have has yet to go through that crucifixion, that submission that's found in Gethsemane. I encourage you, do it today. Heavenly Father, as we end our time, as we come to the end of this great and incredible passage, may we be reminded of the times that we have fallen and the things that got us to those places, knowing that you have forgiven us of all that junk that is in our past. May we talk talk and walk in a brand new way. May we live life in a brand new mold and a brand new mindset that is fully devoted to your will being done in our life. May the old die and may the new come forth. May the old pass away and the new come on the scene. God, not our will for us and for our life, for our family but thine be done I pray